0: So, Andy, Unfinished Business, what, what's been happening? Why Why the long wait between episodes?
1: What's been going on? Well, I tell you what, I don't know whether you know, I don't know whether I've told the listeners, because I, I like to keep things to myself, but I am the biggest ELO superfan, you know, electric light orchestra. Oh, yeah. In the world, right? And some might say I'm a stalker, but that's not the case. And what I've been doing for like the past several months is I've been following them around from gig to gig. What? Every night hanging outside the stage door and, you know, buying tickets for every concert and even yeah. turning up when I haven't got tickets, to be perfectly honest. I mean, anyhow, the nights I've spent outside the Manchester Arena, you just don't want to know. I, uh-huh. I've been carrying a copy, 1970s copy of Out of the Blue on blue vinyl, which I actually have. Wow. I don't have the spaceship anymore, which is my biggest regret in life. Because hmm. when, when you bought the album in the 1970s, it was a gatefold hmm. album. Ah, oh, wonderful. The kids today, they're not going to know. Espen has no idea what a what, gatefold, what is a gatefold album, album
0: is. see? See? Do, you know, do you know what an album is? Espen,
1: do you know what I was born? that
0: concept. <laughs> when were <was laughs> you born? <bought one? laughs> you mean a physical thing that you play?
1: Yes, Espen. Yeah. I've fine. heard of those. I've heard of those. You've seen them in museums. Anyway, there used to be this thing. When it was a double album, sometimes you'd get a gatefold sleeve, which would be, you know, it would open up like a book. And... To make life a little bit more interesting, it had coloured vinyl, so out of the blue came on blue vinyl, and it came with a booklet and a little cardboard ELO spaceship on a tower that you could oh, make up. Wonderful! <laughs> You'll pay about 150 quid for an album with the cut out spaceship, yeah, okay. exactly, on eBay. So yeah. I don't have that, but I've got the regular one, and I've been following them around. Did you know that I played the cello? I didn't know I didn't that. No. Know. no, I've always wanted to play the cello in ELO and this i've been trying they haven't toured for you know for 35 years so i thought this is my big chance so i've been hanging outside the stage door of all these gigs with my cello hoping that i'm going to join the tour and that's where i've been
0: it sounds like a um it sounds like a what was that movie the cameron crowe movie with um which was where the where he follows the band around on tour what was that film called um uh almost famous right yeah it sounds like it sounds like the the sound you know it sounds like exactly that where you and and did you get did you manage to get on stage with the band is there is there a punchline where you last night were up there on stage with the cello
1: no is the records like
0: Ah. no we can we can we can hope it's a long black road isn't it
1: andy if you believe that you'll believe anything but what i'm thinking is if people are gonna make up shit about me I might as well make it interesting. So <laughs> that's my ELO story. There we go. There we go. Love it. So, uh no, to be honest, as I have explained previously, I just got really busy, you know, with um with writing the book and with trying to get some client work in. Because as I think we're going to talk about in a minute, business has been a little bit on the quiet side for the last quarter. So I've been concentrating on getting the work in as well as doing the work and keeping everybody happy. So um, the pod-
0: that, d- i mean that's an interesting wait. one do you think that's a trend is that a trend i mean i've heard that from other people in the industry that it is things are getting quieter g- generally in terms of client work is it actually the most well, people i mean say
1: that
0: i've not most people i think some i've heard it some people have said it
1: yeah. how um, have you found it then espen how's um how's Prime be been doing
2: last year at the tail end of last year it was a bit quiet we were a little bit worried and then this year it's just exploded uh first quarter of this year was our biggest quarter ever, and this month I probably shouldn't say this, but this month we've we've kind of sold more than we did in the entire first year of our business. Wow, so it's Crikey.
0: good it's good, it's good to hear
1: i I don't know it's been weird for us because things started to slow down as they usually do, kind of yeah. mid. Um, December. And I think my problem was, was that normally speaking, I have a, I don't know, it's like a th- two to three month sales cycle. So it takes around about that length of time to go from kind of initial contact to actually, you know, starting a job. Mm-hmm. And I usually, and for a long time, have had that kind of routine. And then sort of after the summer last year, when I was basically you know, over budget on the book. (laughs) It was taking like two months longer than I'd expected it to take to write. I was spending so much time working on that and on the client work that we had at the time that I didn't Mm -hmm. put time into the sales process. So by the time that the work actually ran out mid-December, there was nothing to replace it. So, it's taking a little bit of time to start having those conversations again. And also, to be honest, for the sales inquiries to start coming in. Because it, it has been, I think, really, really quiet in terms of new sales or new inquiries. You know, kind of January, February time, which is, um, you know, sometimes it can be expected. Um, but this time has been particularly bad. And I've heard too that people have been finding it a little bit quiet um, in certain places. And I don't know whether that's to do with... Um, the economy in general or potentially some uncertainty, you know, with the whole uh, European Union uh, referendum bollocks? I don't think it's that.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, the the stuff I'm seeing is the work that I'm doing is much more around working with internal teams and I think what's happening is a lot of our clients, where they used to outsource a lot of web work, are, are not doing that as much anymore. So, you know where traditionally it was only really huge companies that had web teams it's now sort of filtering down where you know even a fairly modest company will have a a team of people that manage the web whereas before that would have been outsourced to an agency or a freelancer you know they're seeing that and they're bringing all that stuff in-house
1: it is interesting i mean we're about to start a job with a smallish company in wales a holiday company and yeah they have two in-house developers and you know we're coming on board to help them with design direction which is really nice Mm-hmm. what's that noise
0: i can hear? oh sorry that's me that's my dog he's, he's playing <laughs>
1: around in the background so i saw a tweet from you espen uh, recently about you said a client just told us that they doubled their bookings after we redesigned their site which is always nice and you said i was surprised considering that we'd used the hamburger menu
2: yeah You know, that was really interesting. I mean, obviously, I don't think the hamburger menu had much to do with it. it, But when we did that site, we kept the hamburger on desktop as well as mobile. And according to Twitter, uh, that's a bad thing
1: to do. Oh, it's a cardinal sin.
2: Exactly. So, you know, that was uh, just my little sarcastic stab at Twitter for just, you know, telling me I was wrong. And uh, it turned out it worked.
1: Well, you've been talking about kind of breaking the rules and, you know not shying away from doing hamburger menus and carousels and I don't know, maybe even slash menus.
2: I mean, I don't really want to be known as the hamburger guy or the carousel guy, but um, I think my, my main point isn't as much try and break the rules when you can, but don't shy away from trying something. Um, after, after I did that talk last year, I wrote it up and posted as article on, on, on uh, smashing. And I think it was Jerry Keith. Uh, this was you, Joe, that, put, that tipped me off about this. He'd seen my talk online and he said he was really intrigued until he read or saw the second part and he accused me of, uh, you know, pushing these lazy tropes of design like carousels and hamburgers. So I'm not really trying to push hamburgers and everyone. I'm just trying to maybe see things in a bigger perspective and see that maybe even though Facebook moved away from the hamburger and they've got this really nice little four-button menu at the bottom, that's not necessarily the right approach for every single website. Um, So the site in question uh, that doubled their sales, the hamburger menu doesn't come into it because of the other calls to actions on the page. Do you know what I mean? Like the the whole process and the content and everything else is what sells the product, not how the menu works.
1: Well, I was really worried about the redesign because one of the things that we haven't been able to talk about because I haven't been doing a podcast is that when we redesigned... Realigned our stuff and nonsense website back in November. I made a conscious effort to move away from doing case studies in terms of web projects and presenting in the portfolio more of a kind of a continuous feed of of design work. Um, and that's kind of worked in some respects and not worked in others. And one of the reasons where it hasn't worked is that people look at that portfolio and they see really lovely graphic design because that's what you do most days you know the elements that go into a design are often really really pretty so those are the things that went on the feed but what we weren't showing were completed web jobs and i'm convinced and i was really really kind of quite worried about this at one stage that people weren't looking at the portfolio and going this is a web design agency that you know they were thinking maybe they were thinking we were graphic designers or something like that
2: yeah we, we had a similar thing in terms of describing who we are and what we do And for the longest time, we couldn't uh, shake the fear of not explaining in detail to everyone, uh, you know, point by point what we do as a service. But I think I like your approach better. You kind of just try and tell a story and get people interested. And they should be able to suss out that you're a web agency,
1: I think. Well, my my gorilla just fell over. Not many people say that. One of the things that I wanted to do with the design, and I'll probably get around to talking about it more in depth at some stage, was that I just wanted the website not to present the work in the same way as everybody else seems to be selling the work. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, you do a Google image search for responsive web design and it's hilarious. You know, you get the graphics that everybody seems to have because, you know, they, whereas been before, a designer's portfolio used to be some way of expressing themselves creatively. Now it just seems to be a place where people paste screenshots of their work into Apple products. Exactly. And I didn't want to do that, so I really wanted to kind of break the mold a little bit and experiment with with presenting work in different ways. Um, and I was really worried, you know, when when the work dried up and we weren't when the phone wasn't ringing. I was thinking. God, is it to do with the website? You know, we made this big mistake. Is everybody just expecting these days for a web design company to look a certain way and to show that they do responsive web design by pasting screenshots into an iPhone?
0: Interesting, isn't it? Yeah.
1: It is interesting because it is what people expect.
0: But it depends how they're... I mean, I this has been an interesting year for me because this has been my first year of being a freelancer. And I worked for an agency for many years and that, that was one of the biggest challenges I found was, well, how do I talk about what i do and my services and how i offer stuff and the agency i used to work for you know we had case these up there and again it was similar sort of thing you'd have lots of different shots of the of the of the website in different screen sizes talking about how responsive it was and this that and the other and it's been interesting now and and always you know in the back of my head i was always wondering well is that what you know people going to does this happen people go to your website and go yeah i'm going to employ these guys off we go they phone you up and they do it because again i know it's most of the time when i Certainly, I attract and get new clients. It's not because of the the website; they're not found me for via Google. They found me because they've, you know, somebody's recommended me, or I've done some work with somebody they know previously, rather than it being the actual website and the and the the case studies that that sell my work.
1: Yeah, yeah. I suppose ours is fifty fifty. You know, it's fifty okay. percent recommendation, and you know, we do get particularly a couple of years ago when for some. Reason I can't explain. We found ourselves in really high on google.com for web design mm-hmm. UK. And we picked up a load of what I'd call kind of, you know, cold contact work, um, you know, in Africa yeah. and South America and kind of weird it's places. So, um, and those kind of people. They need to be told because, you know, they don't know or care about the conference talks I've done or the books that we've written or anything else. You know, they just think, oh, I need a website. Who can I go to? Yeah, that's
0: it. But I mean, what? how does that differ? What sort of work do you think you get? Because, again, it's just I know the stuff that I get with people, have, you know, I, they say "Oh, I've come across your profile on LinkedIn or I've come across your website. The work that I tend to get from those leads tends to be of you know, not, not the sort of stuff that I want to be doing. It's the mm. it's the sort of work that I'm not really not interested in necessarily doing. It's like you know, do you want to do three weeks of wireframes in you know for this that? And it's not the sort of stuff that I want to end up doing. So, do you find that the the quality of work differs from kind of you know recommendation versus stuff that comes through the website?
1: Well, we're just about to embark on a great big long project. Thankfully, the drought is are is over, and yeah that came from a recommendation and it's exactly the kind of work that i think that we are good at doing it we that we want to do but if i am you know we can't afford to turn things away every single day and be really really picky but i think that you know sometimes a project will come through the door that's cold and You'll think to yourself, do you know what? I think I can make a really good job of this. You know, I've looked around at solicitors' websites and they're all bleeding terrible. So actually, let's design a beautiful, a beautiful, let's design a solicitor's website that has the best typography you've ever seen on a solicitor's Mm -hmm. website. And that's what I do. I try to make the best out of what we've got on every project because, you know, in lots of sectors, web design is just, careful
2: you're totally right Andy it's it's really difficult with certain clients certain budgets certain topics to to push the boat I remember my first job we did this awful job and I was not happy I was you know I was fresh out of uni I wanted to do something amazing and I did this crappy old magazine for a, a local county and my boss said look dudes just relax you did a really good job considering you had no budget uh, and no time and no, you know, rain to do anything creative. So I think I think you're right. You have got to focus on what you actually can do, uh, and not uh, what you could do if you had uh, a million pounds.
1: Yeah, I just you know there were some jobs that I would say, yeah, that's exactly the kind of uh, quality and calibre of client. And you kind of rank clients, don't you? In certain, so this is like a Premier League oh, yeah. client. We rank them, and we tell them as a client. Well. This is a client that you know my mother would have heard of, so you know that's great. Um, but those are, let's face it, few and far between. And when you land something like that, it's a it's a great day. But there are other clients and there are other businesses that they really need that kind of help, and we try to use the same approach and the same attitude towards work for a small business. Mm-hmm. As we do for, a, you know, for a large insurance company or whatever it might be, because, you know, we can still do beautiful typography. We can still really consider layout and responsiveness, and we can still really think about how we can communicate their message. They may only have a sort of a small amount of time and a, and a smaller budget, but that just means that they get less of it. it. doesn't mean to say that they get a, you know, a subpar job. Yeah, they get a smaller job. They just get the a smaller quality, website. Yeah.
2: But what do you do in that situation if the content is uh, not up to scratch? I mean, obviously, if there's a small budget, they might not have a copywriter. You might not be paid to write the content for them. So no matter how good your typography is, if their message kind of you know sucks, then what do you do?
1: Yeah, I'm guilty of rewriting client yeah, copy. I, I, I a do lot a lot as well, actually. actually. Yeah. And often I won't charge for it. And often if I'm pasting something into a template or a visual or whatever it is I'm making, I'll be thinking about their content along the way. Um, and sometimes I'll shortcut the process by saying to them, let's do an interview. Let's you and I sit down for an hour and I'm going to ask you a load of questions about your business and who you serve and what the advantages of people dealing with you are over somebody else. You know, I'm going to ask, ask you a dozen questions and, you can just tell me as in conversation the answer to those questions. And that's the content for the website. Definitely. Yeah. I think that's a really Be- nice idea. Uh, and that actually works out much nicer and you get much more of a kind of a conversational tone out of people. Whereas if you if you put a solicitor in front of, you know, a blank Word document and ask him to write about his business, you're going to get the stuff that starts, you know, we were established in mm-hmm. 1976 you know, and are one of North Wales' leading. And you know oh, the yeah. stuff that everybody's got. Yeah, and, yeah, and like half great, of yeah. that will be exactly. copied from
2: their old websites.
1: Yeah. So yeah, that's what we tend yeah. to do. We yeah. tend to help people as much as we can. Well, I think you know the point, if it is,
0: is design isn't just how it looks. That's the point, isn't it? You know, we're all in the same position where you know the stuff I end up designing is much more around kind of you know website structures. So I, I work on the you know big high end. Often quite complex sites, and yeah, I do the same thing there. I'm st- always, forever rewriting copy that's you know that's really not very well thought out. But again, you can't design a site without designing the copy. You can't, you know, even if it looks incredible. I think your point, Espen. If if the copy's dreadful, it's that website. You know, you've not you've not done your job properly. And I think a lot of you see that a lot. A lot of designers love a bit of lorem. And they never really they put a set of, you know, some lorem text in their design, like two or three sentences of it, without really thinking about well, what actually needs to be said in this particular area of this website. Yeah. And then, you know, then it comes to the last, you know, 24 hours before launch. The client's thinking desperately, well, what what three sentences can I write at this point without really knowing what should be going in there? So yeah, I'm you know, I think any designer who's designing with lorem text in their designs isn't doing it properly.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean we we've had this problem since day one when we started Primates, And then a couple of years ago, we spoke to a guy called Jerry Forrestal. Um, he's like a business coach here in Edinburgh. And he mm-hmm. told us this brilliant piece of advice. He said, well, well, if content is your biggest problem, why don't you just start with a content workshop for every single client? So we yeah. started doing that. And now it's 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 our biggest seller, so to speak. Like everybody loves it. We get everyone in the room. We get their users in the room. We get the whole committee, like three or four of us. And we just talk about uh, kind of what you're saying, Andy. We, we sit down, we discuss... who who it is that they are, who are they talking to, what they want to say, what are the main drivers on the website. And at the end of, what, five, six hours, we have a sitemap and we know what content we need. And then everyone's on board with this process and we get the content before we start designing, uh, in a good case scenario, that is.
1: I think that's absolutely brilliant. I mean, we do a similar thing with clients in terms of kind of kickoff. I don't know whether I could keep people in the room for five or six hours no you need lots
2: of cakes and coffee and soda (laughs) but I think I think you know when everyone's there everyone gets bought into the process and if you're not writing the content you nominate someone in their team to be the editor and that person then becomes responsible and we find it really helps I mean we always we still struggle with some clients but some of them they really really like it and we're working on a project now we give them deadlines every week and they meet them it's incredible
1: well, hold that thought for a minute, because I've just realised that we are 15, 20 minutes, some, into this podcast, and uh, I haven't said who the hell we are. Oh, we should do that, yes. I need to do a proper introduction. introduction. I should formally introduce you two to both of our listeners. Okay. So, I'm going to get serious now. This is the start of the official bit, okay? Okay. This is the part that you'd hear if this podcast was as good as something on the BBC. (laughs) Here we go. A very warm welcome back to Unfinished Business. This is episode 119 and I'm your host, former cellist with the Electric Light Orchestra, Andy Clark. Well, if people are going to make up shit, it might as well be interesting. (laughs) Joining me this week are designer and co-founder of Primate, which is a web agency that creates innovative online products, because that's what everybody does websites aren't cool enough anymore and he writes about design at eight gram gorilla which i love because you know gorillas and for smashing magazine he's mr espen brumborg hello hi andy thanks for having me how was that intro it
2: was good it's a bit of an awkward uh, description of primates but that's fine it is what our website (laughs)
1: says
2: (laughs) for the record we are redesigning (laughs) as we speak
1: cool so you're gonna have more gorillas
2: uh maybe Have you seen our monkey bios? No. If you you find my profile on our website and click the little monkey icon, you get a surprise.
1: Okay. I'm going to put a link in the show notes so that tens of other people can do (laughs) literally tens of people. So joining Espen is strategic commander of user experience that's me because that's not grand that's not grand
0: no but it's a joke job title andy that's that's the whole thing and people i love it when people take it really seriously as well i just made it up because uh everybody's got such grand job titles i had no idea what to call it and actually it's my nephew he came up with it because he said to me he said to me one day he said what what is it you do and i said i do this ux thing he's like right okay he says, what else does he do? And I said, well, I kind of help people figure out what it is they want to do with their digital stuff. You know, like the really complex, gnarly stuff, the sort of strategic stuff. And he went, oh, right, strategic, as in like a strategic commander. Because I think he got it from his Lego, um, the Lego Rebels uh, TV show that he was watching. And I was like, yes, I'm a strategic commander. And ever since then, I've had that in my bio. But obviously it's a joke because nobody in their right mind would call themselves a strategic commander of UX, would they?
1: Well, no, but nobody in their right mind would call themselves a front end engineer either. That's true. Or worse, a back-end engineer. For now, for now. And also, getting back to my bio, author of Psychology for Designers, which you now self-publish. Yes, I do. For the absolute bargain, bargain price of £3.50. It's Mr. Joe Leach. Hello. 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 That was great.
0: I realized I interrupted my own introduction. I, that, that's my problem. I can't stop. I can't stop talking. I think I made a better job.
1: Oh, see, I thought it sounded very professional, but I'll I'll leave it to you to decide. (laughs) So we're talking about business. Yes.
0: Well, we're talking about how, you know, um, how we often end up rewriting our copy for our client work without actually ever possibly even charging for it in a lot of the work we do i found myself doing it recently actually i was working for um sse you know sse the big uh, electric company i was working for their telecoms sub brand and i ended up rewriting an awful lot of their copy just because i was doing building helping to build a prototype to get some ideas across and it was just so much easier to rewrite the whole thing than to sort of deal with some of the 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 copy that they had
1: do you find yourself putting your own style on the writing because i have a little house style where um i really really hate title case in headings so if somebody writes something in title case i always change it to sentence case without their permission usually and Mm -hmm. i'm a big fan of contractions as well so i'll say you're rather than you are and we rather we are and things like that because i think that unless you know unless you're a barrister it's just a more kind of friendly, you know, friendly and approachable kind of tone. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes you you do sort of play text ping pong with people because they'll get they'll send text back and they'll have corrected it again. They'll have put it back to title back. case. Yeah, I find that. Well, the title case thing that's that's an Americanism, isn't it?
0: I find that because a lot of the. I'm doing a, a work because again a lot of the work I do is also I work with big companies, but I also work with startups. I'm working with a start an, an American designer actually on a, with a startup at the moment, and everything he writes he writes in um, title case, and then I correct it back, and he's then he corrects it back again. And I'm like, well, it, this is a site for UA, UK audience. You can't use um, title case. You've got to use sentence case because sentence case is how we do things more in the UK. That's more of a British English thing than American English thing.
1: Well, interestingly, we hired an SEO company. Don't laugh. <laughs> but we Because <laughs> I wanted to try to get some of our, you know, ranking back. And I thought, you know what? I'm not an expert in this stuff. And I don't know whether there's anything in it, really, either. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know whether it's all just bollocks. So I thought, no, I'm going to hire a company and, you know, I'm going to pay them for three months or more to, to do this stuff for me. And they came back with a whole load of new meta tags, you know, new meta descriptions for the website.
2: Still doing meta tags, are
1: we? Yeah, Well apparently so. Apparently so, but certainly in terms of you know what comes up in your Google search results, it tends to be if you know, it tends to be that meta description. Mm-hmm. So they sent me a whole load of those things through, which I dutifully kind of put in, and as I did them, I changed them from title case back to sentence case. Because, you know, I just thought it looked better on Google. And then I get a slap across the wrist by one of the guys saying, actually, no, it's best practice and performs better, That he says, if it's title case. Wow, there we
2: go. I'd like to see the proof for that. I don't believe that. me too.
1: I don't
0: believe that. Was that an an American tip or was that a British? Because, again, you know, you notice that a lot of the SEO people just read stuff on other SEO people's blogs and it sort of becomes this sort of echo chamber of what works and what doesn't work. I bet he read that somewhere. And I bet his numbers are from a US company rather than a British company. I bet it would be the other way around. I've been in user research and people have gone, is this an American website when everything's written in title case versus sentence case? So I wonder if that's SEO best practice that's been read on an American blog somewhere. You know, it, I always question every, everybody else's research. Always, always question other people's research. I, mean, that's,
2: I find that really interesting, Joe, because isn't that what we all do? Like we read stuff on other people's blogs and we go, yeah, that's such a good point. Like they, he's totally nailed it. He's, he's even got proof. And then we tweet it and then someone else picks it up. And then suddenly we have this circle of fact in, you know, quotation marks. And no one really does their own stuff. Maybe, well, apart from you, of course. Well, I do. I mean, I, I do a lot of reality. research.
0: Yeah, I do loads of research. So again, if I can, you know, the research that I've done can help back up some of those ideas or um, disprove other stuff as well. I'm forever, you know, always questioning what other people's research says. And, and you know, silly things like, I mean, a, a classic example is, um, you know, uh, project a few years ago we were like what um it was an e-commerce site and we you know we asked we we did just i come in the client said right so we've done a survey and we've asked people this was for uh, selling washing machines we asked people how many what choice of washing machines they wanted did they want to choose from 30 different washing machines to buy from 50 or 100 and everybody in the survey pretty much exactly said we want to choose from 100 um 100 washing machines Okay. Then we, I was like, well, I don't think that's actually true. I said, well, people might say that, but is that the behavior that comes from it? I said, well, let's try it. I said, let's try a couple of multivariant tests within, you know, some, some research to figure out what's the optimum number. Is it how many, how many washing machines is the right number that people will want to choose from to make it feel like they're getting the best deal in terms of, you know, the washing machine they want. I.e., let's measure conversion. If we give them, we actually gave them 5, 30, 50 and 100. With, you know, within the survey, people said 100 without a shadow of a doubt. But actually, within we did the multivariant testing, we offered people just five washing machines to choose from. They sold far more washing machines than they, they did when they offered people 100 to choose from. And that is the difference between research saying one thing and actually the reality of behavior saying something completely different.
1: Is that because people appreciated a more simpler choice between five rather than 100?
0: Yeah, it's easier to choose. Yeah. You know, it's classic yeah, psychology. Think... You know, we've, we've only got a certain amount of mental ability, cognitive load called in psychology, and we've only, we, it's easier to choose from five because we've not got 100 options we have to trawl through to, to do it. So, yeah, it's less mental effort.
2: And I, I would guess as well, there's less uh, chance of second guessing yourself after you've supposedly made a choice.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's like you can't procrastinate and go, well, I'll just look at another 10 before I decide yeah. on the one that's there. I've only got five to choose from. Off we go, there it is. And the temptation is often in digital, the digital one is because is you can offer an enormous inventory because effectively, certainly if you're selling digital products, inventory is pretty much free. But the reality is, is people you need to find a sweet spot for the number of items that it is you sell. And what's interesting about washing machines, the number of, you know, is different for shoes. You know, if you're on a site that sells shoes, five isn't the um, optimum number of pairs of shoes you should be offering. It's it's upwards again. So I guess my point is, is that one type of research, like a questionnaire, and questionnaires, let me tell you, are always pretty poor in terms of getting good results back. Questionnaires might work in one domain for one problem, but then the behaviour might show something different for one e-commerce domain for versus a different e-commerce domain. So again, anytime we read any of this stuff, we've always got to question how that research was done and the domain that it was done in before we can be 100% sure it's going to actually efi- efficiently work in the domain that we're working in now.
2: Uh, but what I'm hearing, Joe, is that you, not only do you have to really question it, you kind of have to do your own research as well because always, someone yeah. could read research and read a proper user study about washing machines thinking, actually, five is a really good number and then apply that to shoes, or Absolutely, not of yeah. whatever they're selling. So, you know, what? no matter how well researched something is or how well scientifically proven something is, it might not apply to your your, your case at all.
0: Really so true. And what's interesting about washing machines is again, the same client I worked on with the washing machine example, they also sold fridges and the number of fridges that people wanted was far higher because again, people buy a washing machine based on performance and load and that sort of stuff, but people buy fridges based on aesthetics. So again, people were wanting more choice in terms of fridge to get a better match for their kitchen because the fridge is often the centerpiece of a kitchen. So it's interesting that you can't even slightly move a finding from one very related thing like a washing machine to a to a fridge yeah. it just doesn't work on that simple level
1: well i'm not convinced about the title case in my meta tags <laughs> I'm, I'm with you as well never be convinced andy's
0: my until you've done the research and you've proved it yourself like you run a multivariant test of conversion on the you know from on both of those two styles that would be the best way to prove it would be an mbt test multivariant
2: but even even then you can get false positives right unless you have like literally thousands and thousands of people.
0: You can. Yeah, absolutely. You can. And also you, you don't actually ever even know what you're actually, if it's the case that title case or versus sentence case has actually been the proof. And the reason that people have done this, versus something else that's going on at the same time. It's very hard to prove it, but yeah.
2: I read a very interesting article. I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote it. It was basically, uh, he'd AB tested some emails and, uh, found significant difference between the two variants uh, but they were actually identical. So, huh. you know, he's kind of just going, we don't really know what makes people do one thing over another. It could be literally anything around them. So yeah. even even when you test identical websites against each other, you get different results.
0: Which is why it's often best to do two types of research. So again, because again, you know, I do loads of user research in what I do is it's always best to run two types of research. So again, if you run a multivariant or AB test type piece of research, again, like the washing machine number, it's also good to do a bit of user research to understand why. Because again, multivariant testing will tell you that, you know, show seven versus showing five, but it won't tell you ever tell you why that's the case, that one's better than another one. But then at the very least, if you do user research, you can back up why why that is the case that something like again the fridge versus the washing machine example where i said people want to choose from a wider selection of fridges than they do from a a selection of washing machines user research showed that again people said well it's because i want it to look good in my kitchen whereas Mm. people were buying washing machines for different reasons so i always say do two two types of research in everything that you do one which is qualitative which in terms of things like interviews and understanding what people are thinking at that point and then something that's more quantitative either multivariate or surveys but something that that complements the other type of research that you're doing don't just do one type of research
1: this is really interesting because a lot of the stuff that you're talking about and i know some of it comes down to psychology and some of it's i don't know what how you would describe it really but the whole kind of research side of things is is very alien to me As a designer, you know, Mm -hmm. it's something that I've kind of learned to do a certain amount of or to a certain extent, particularly over, you know, the last kind of five or 10 years. But it's not something that I thought that I would ever be doing when I decided that I was going to, you know, design things for a living. And it's quite interesting. I mean, you pick stuff up along the way, but how can I be sure, for example, that, you know, the advice that I'm giving to clients is... Is the right advice. And also, how can I be sure that the stuff that I'm putting on my own website is going to convince people as well? Could we start talking about, you know, our kind mm-hmm. of dry patch in terms of business and whether or not it was to do with our, you know, the decisions that I've made on the website. How do I go about actually doing A-B testing or multivariant testing? Or are those two the same thing? Um that, yeah, the that, that subtleties. That, I mean, I'll mean, i talk about, it. I mean,
0: again, if I was, so again, Andy, if you approached me and said, hey, um, I'm thinking about redesigning stuff and nonsense, can you help me from a research point of view understand what is the best way to to do it? I could certainly help. And it's like, again, you know, this is common for all of us. So again, when I built my website, when I became freelance, the first thing that I did was I sent a quick survey out to all the clients that I worked with before saying, what is it you like working about working with me what are the traits that you like about working with me what are the benefits that you think i bring to the web projects you're working on and i used a lot of the words that they then came back to me with in in that survey and again it was all open-ended questions so i said you know what is it you like working about with me mr joe on a ux project and they came back and said oh we love it because you're a good communicator you've always got evidence for the reasons you say so again that informed the copy that i then wrote on my personal website um And that's the best way to do it is to never go in there feeling like you're the expert. So again, whenever I go into design projects, I never come in as an expert. I come in saying, well, I've got some processes that can work to get us towards a good website. I've got some evidence that's going to suggest something that you um, we think is going to work, but I can't be 100% sure that it's going to work until we do either user research or multivariate testing at the end to prove that the ideas that we've come up with are going to work. So I, I kind of talk about this concept of, um, of strong ideas weekly held. So I'll come in with some good ideas to, to to bring you know your website forward, but I'm always expecting, fully expecting throughout research to disprove my thinking. And I'm always pleased when it does because, again, it shows that going in with a strong idea that you're not wedded to all the way through, that the research or any research that you do can um, alter how you feel about that project, alter the direction of that project, alter the design, the copy, all of it as we move through. So never go in knowing the exact answer, always go in expecting research to guide you to a particular end point.
2: He's so wise, this Joe guy. He is. My issue with research isn't... uh isn't that it's difficult to do or I or, or don't want to do it is that if we're working on a big project, I mean a, a, a site that needs a lot of attention, but the budget's only say 20 grand, the client may pay an extra two grand for copywriting and a couple of grand for photography, but they're not going to pay another 15 for user research. And on the basis of that research to change the first draft of the whole site, they can't afford another 15 grand on top of that either. So for us, it's a, uh, it's it's a balance trying to get as much research and and user testing and interviews into the process, but also knowing that if any of this radically changes what we've assumed, it's going to be really tough to make big changes once the budget's
0: gone. But but then you know if if, if the research radically changes what you've ideas you've come in, doesn't that tell you you've got the wrong ideas in the first place?
1: Absolutely. And that, that's but...
0: and, and that's the scary thing I think is that's I'll be honest that's what a lot of organisations and certainly design agencies are scared about is that users are going to tell them because again you know i'll often get asked by an agency to come and say can you do some validation testing on our design work please and what they're telling us is the client is a little unsure about the design work that they've been proposed and they're asking me to do validation testing and what valid what we're asking that question is they're basically saying can you please validate our design thinking please and anytime you're looking to validate your thinking you're in a dangerous place so my suggestion is always with research is it's never as expensive as you think it's going to be. So, again, any project you're working on, even the smallest amount of research before you even start the design process is the place to give you a strong foundation to design against. So if you go into a design project um, and you've spoken to, you know, even if it's just a couple of phone calls with some users or you've dropped down to your local Starbucks to show them the website, Whoever it is, as long as you've spoken to people who are users, you've got a bit of reasoning, a bit of evidence to suggest a particular design direction. It tells you not only what's wrong with the current incarnation, but it will give you some ideas about what's possibly you could do in the future. So again, a good part of start um, discovery research is to take you know your client's website and benchmark it against two or three of their competitors. You know, spend... get. Five, six users, spend, get them to spend 20 minutes on each of those websites, you know, and then off the end of it, off the back of that, you'll get an idea about what your client's website is, not you know, what's not working for them, what's yeah. working and not working for their competitors, and you're there. And that shouldn't cost you very much. That should cost you a few days' work. But th- here's the benefit. The real benefit is that you've all then got a shared understanding about what you've got to do. So it's no more about my opinion as a designer about what you should do, Mr. Client. It's not my expert design opinion or my gut feel that you should do direction X. It's that we've seen the research. The research tells us that users like these things. They respond well to these messages. They really like this thing that you're doing. They really like these things your competitors are doing. That gives us then a series of design approaches to take forward. And I often find that projects where we've done the research up front the project flows because everybody's got a shared understanding about what's going on. And you never get to that point where you're being micromanaged in terms of design, where the client's like, I'm not sure if you're doing that right, or I don't agree with the colour you use for that. Again, because you've got the evidence from that initial research to get the process.
1: Yeah, I couldn't couldn't agree more. Espen mentioned small businesses and you're not having the budget for research or UX mm-hmm. to a, to a wider extent. It's not just with smaller clients with lower budgets, though. I mean, we've just been putting a proposal together for you know another or- larger organisation in Wales, and their briefing documentation doesn't mention any kind of research, not even a planning phase. I mean, they've broken down the set of requirements into you know design phases and development phases, but at no point do they specifically mention any of the things that go around it. I mean, of course, it doesn't Mm -hmm. mention copywriting and it doesn't mention photography because um, that just comes magically, I'm sure. But at no point does it mention any kind of UX work or research, not even the kind of work which would inform what they're asking us to be doing in the first place. So they haven't been through any kind of research uh, stage so far, And they're not asking for one when it comes to the actual start of the project. So slotting Mm -hmm. that in and convincing somebody, because, you know, I can guarantee that if we're going to add another 15,000 pounds on top of a budget, that's going to, that's going to, that's going to take us significantly, you know, significantly higher than, you know, let's say some other people that may be uh, pitching for the same work. Um, Mm. and we have to kind of do a convincing job with the client too. You do, and I think the, de- the thing is the thing you've got though, Andy. So again,
0: let's take let's take that scenario. So again, you you're working with a client. They've got a brief. They've sent it out to five agencies, and all five agencies respond to that brief in terms of a document. Okay, and what that that client is then doing is is basically what criteria have they got to compare each of the agencies against. So number one, the first thing they're going to look at is price. Okay, because that's an easy, tangible thing to look at. Okay, right. Let's have a look at these five agencies. Okay, agency X is a thousand pounds cheaper than anybody else. Great. They're then going to take a step back and look at what what's their experience. Have they got experience in the same sector as us? Great. Okay. So if you've got experience and you can be cheaper, you're going to win. But the chances are for most um, web briefs, you know, you're not, you, we are, you know, you're going to either be slightly more expensive or not having the exact right amount of experience. So the way to tackle that is to reinterpret the brief into a way that's going to help them get more out of the process with you. So again, yeah, go back and say, look, we don't know. We don't think you're right in terms of the assumptions you've made in terms of this brief about what your users want. We don't think that's right, okay? We can't be 100% sure. And the success of your final website in this investment is at huge risk. You know, So maybe you're spending 20, 30, 40,000 pounds on this website. You're risking that 40,000 pounds on an assumption that you've got the requirements right right now. Isn't it worth spending 10% of that budget to check you've got those requirements right? So the final website you spend this money on is going to perform in the way that you want it. Now, most organisations, if they're spending forty thousand pounds on their website, that website is probably driving an awful lot of business their way, attracting new students, attracting new customers, all that stuff. So again, for most businesses, the website is the, is is a very strong route for them to get more clients in. So again, you go in and say, "Look, do you absolutely one hundred percent sure exactly these are what this is what your user groups want? If you're not one hundred percent sure, let's not do this the way that you want. Let's do a bit of research and understand exactly what it is." that your users want and need and feel about you and design to that. And all it is, is effectively, the research isn't adding extra cost, it's minimising risk. And risk is the biggest problem of any web design project is we risk messing it up and the website that they've got for the next two or three years doesn't make user needs. So it's
1: not about extra expense, it's about minimising risk. That's very, very difficult to do inside the tendering processes that a lot agree. of public mm-hmm. sector and taxpayers' money-driven organizations. If we're talking about a large company, you know, we're talking about, I don't know, um, uh, a a big white goods retailer or, you know, we're talking about World Wildlife Fund or we're talking about, um, I don't know, Smashing Magazine, Mm -hmm. some of our, you know, joint clients, then that kind of honest and frank approach is so logical and so rational that I don't know many people that would be able to argue against it. But the frameworks that so many people, you know, people listening, uh-huh. who have to, yeah. you know, they pitch and they tender and they do this kind of stuff for, you know, large organizations. Let's let let's face it, in Wales, where where I live, you know, a huge amount of web work, particularly in South Wales, um, is driven through, um, you know, the Welsh government, And they have these tendering processes, you know, where everything has to be so um, impartial or, you know, you can't even get to speak to the person responsible because you have to put all of your questions through the sell to Wales portal or something like that. Now, one could argue, well, I don't want to do that kind of work. You know, I don't want to play their game. I don't want to be involved in their processes because it's stupid. And I don't want to have to deal with the stupid portal. You know, if I can't phone the guy up, then I don't want to do it. But at the end of the day, somebody gets that work. And often, that work's really shitty and yeah i know that we could do a much 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 better job but it's incredibly difficult to have those conversations that you're talking about having inside the lot of the processes that so many of these large clients have to go through and it's not just you know local governments it's larger organizations who think that the best way of you know finding out that they're getting value for money is to is to pitch three agencies against each other in a kind of pepsi challenge Agreed, and uh, you know, for me, number one,
0: I I don't go in. I, I I will do exactly what you said. I'll walk away from that. So If I can't see the whites of the client's eyes and have a chat with them, then I won't. I won't. I I, will, I won't do that work. And you're right. That's a real challenge. And I'm quite fortunate that I can. I'm in a position to be able to do that. And I do. I do get lots of government work coming my way asking me that particular question. Um, I mean, and there's two ways to deal with it. So number one, and the best way to deal with this stuff is to, is to is to recommend and is to advise somebody on the best way to write a invitation to tender or to write those briefing documents. Um, and so again, I've done that, I've done that work for clients. So I've been on the other side of that. Because again, you know, I I'm just me, I'm a UX freelancer. I can't do high-quality design or HTML or any of that kind of stuff. So I will speak to the client and I'll say, well let, tell you what, let me help you write the brief that you're going to then put out to tender, that agencies will pitch for to get there, and I'll help you do that. I'll help you understand the criteria that you need to write um, this brief for, so that you're choosing the right agency in the right way. And you're right. Any time a client is or is putting together a invitation to tender, that is. G- Basing you know their final choice on a thirty-minute pitch by three agencies, they're never going to choose the right agency because again, there are lots of agencies out there that invest so much time and effort in being incredibly good at RFPs and pitching and incredibly terrible at work, but they get more work not because they do good not because they do good work, but because they're really good at pitching an RFP. So absolutely, that, that's the danger you've got is if you're not shaping that RFP in the first place, then you're never going to do as well as somebody whose job it is to just do nothing but respond to public sector RFPs and pitch.
2: But I also think there's, there's usually some wiggle room in these things like our content yeah. workshop, which we're now, we're probably going to rename it to a strategy workshop because, because, it does cover some of the initial research. You know, we get actual users in the room with our client as well. And we just talk mm-hmm. about everything and it's costing the client, you know, a, a, a thousand pounds, maybe a couple of thousand pounds and it just sets the tone and it helps establish the relationship. It helps put everyone else on the same page. It's not like a long winded research program.
0: No way. It's just it a It never should be long winded. Yeah. And, and most research, there's a myth that user research is expensive. Yes. If you go to a usability or user research agency, they'll charge you 10 to 15,000 pounds for it. If you're doing it yourself, you can easily do it for under, you know, under a thousand pounds. So again, even And also yeah. sometimes what I'll do is if it's a project that I really want to do, I will do the research for free. I will go and spend a bit of time going out and getting users to do it because I know that without it, the final piece of work that's created won't be as good as it possibly can be. You know, regardless of how good the typography is or how well the copy is written, if we don't know what users want, the the website's going to fail or not be as good as it possibly could be. Yeah. So I totally sometimes really I will often it. just go and do the research myself or... Um, but you know, it doesn't have to be, you can do other things like you can create personas. Personas can be a proxy for user research. You can create a mm-hmm. pen portrait of your user groups, the very least to ask, you know, these personas, you can create personas and ask them the similar sorts of questions as your users. Well, I mean, it's not as good, but you can get similar sorts of results out of, out of, out of um, persona stuff as well. So yeah. There are other routes to do it.
2: The persona thing is, is something we do in the, in our workshops uh, and it's, it's based on a lot of assumptions But it's a way of defining the audience clearly to everyone in the room. And then what we do is we ask everyone to imagine what those personas would ask of the website. And again, this is based on assumption, but it's still better than, uh, you know, a board director just writing to us, telling us what the website should say.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I agree. It's it's a much nicer, it's it's better than no, you know, it's a bit better than no research. But again,
1: yeah, it, it can help. Yeah. I think a lot oh, of people wow. have got to the point now when we talk about this no spec rule which you know, I'm not going to design visuals for a pitch you know I'm not going to invest mm-hmm. time in something which is not going to solve the problem and is going to get thrown away the minute that we actually start the job, if we indeed get the job based on the kind of pitch work that, that we do. <laughs> and yeah. it's a brave stance. Um, not is. everybody um, sticks to it the whole time, I'm sure. Um, I know that we don't. But I wonder at what point we're going to get to the stage where people just go, What I have a no pitch rule. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm. Yeah. I'm not gonna. I'm, I have the no pitch rule. Yeah. Do you not have a no? Do you have a no pitch rule?
0: Yeah, I do. I have a no pitch rule. I don't do pitching. Um, I also tend to not get too involved in competitive work as well. So if I speak to a client and they say well, we're going to go and speak to some other people about it, I'm like, well, okay, that's fine. You go and speak to other people and come back when you've decided if you want to work with them or not. But I, I tend not to get into that role.
2: That's a that's a really nice position to be in.
0: But I'm lucky that I can. I mean, I've got a reputation and experience that means that. Uh, the conversations I can have with the client, I can generally help them straight away in terms of the conversations. They can see the value almost immediately. But if they're not sure about the value that I'm offering from an initial conversation with me, that probably suggests that the relationship isn't going to go very well anyway. So, you know, it's like going on a first date, you know, it's like going on a first date with somebody and them saying to you, well, you know, I think you seem to be quite nice, but I wonder if I could maybe do a bit better. So I'm going to go on two or three other dates with two or three other people before I commit to you. Is that okay? And you're like, well, no, that's not okay. So it's like this whole world of pitching and choosing somebody to do on your work is often so odd and so disjointed from what the reality is of most human situations
1: that, yeah, if you could avoid it, why wouldn't you avoid it? And yet people yeah. make decisions on all kinds of different levels. And, yeah. you know, last year we went through a great big project to. Uh, redesign and rebuild our kitchen and although sue had kind of pretty much decided who she wanted to work with and you know i still Mm -hmm. wanted to do the thing i still wanted to get the three quotes and i felt kind of quite guilty about it actually Mm -hmm. but to a certain degree i just wanted to make sure that i wasn't getting taken for a ride
2: yeah you, you want to
0: double check the costs, don't you
1: does that not suggest you've got a slight mistrust of the builder you're choosing
0: you know, that, that's the difference is, do you think that this guy was a builder is somehow... Because again, that's the thing I hate is that somehow if people are thinking, well, I'm going to compare you on cost with somebody else, uh, you know, and what what's that telling you about the value of the work that I'm suggesting? Well, and that, that's the thing that I found quite hard to to square in this particular, you know,
1: I, I find that quite hard to get my head around. There's a couple of things in there. I mean, first of all, I'm a salesman. Always have been. Well, we all, we all are. We all so, are. I like to get a deal. You know, I will ask for a deal in John Lewis or wherever it is that we're shopping. I'm not in Sainsbury's when I'm picking up my shopping, but, you know, generally speaking, I'll always ask, you know, is there some kind of deal? Um, And I don't know, that's just part of my nature, I suppose. So there is a certain element where you think to yourself, I want to be getting the best price possible. That's, you know, and Mm -hmm. okay, I know price isn't the same as value, but, you know... I want to make sure that I'm getting the uh, the same kind of uh, the, the best value that I can. And then the other thing is that, no, I hadn't worked with that builder before. And, you know, he, he he's very, very well respected and he's built houses in the village that look brilliant, but I've not worked with him. Mm-hmm. And whenever you say to somebody, you know, did you have a great experience? You know, you never quite get to the real bottom of it. It's not like having the experience yourself. So, Yeah. You, it's the same with a lot of people that are moving to a new designer or perhaps like the client that I'm going to be working with in a couple of weeks. They've never hired a designer before. You know, they're a development yeah. team that have just used bootstrap and you know, they've never had somebody come in and, and tell them what I'm going to be telling them. So mm-hmm. there's a little bit of reservation on there and yeah, they, they want to be finding out. They want to be making sure that they've made the right decision. Cause you know, it's a big one for a lot of people.
0: It is. But I think, you know, again, I, I think you're right to be in the role we're in now. I think all three of us do this is we're all, we all have to be salesmen to a certain extent. And it We all it sounds like we've all got different approaches to it. The way I sort of go in and again, cause probably I'm more of a consultant I'd say than, a, than anything else is that I, the advice and the, the support and the ideas that I give to my clients is based on value at the end of the day. So I can come in and say to you, well, I've got these experiences. You can speak to these different clients where I've increased, you know, business value, increased conversion by this number, increased this amount, you know, the amount of business by this number. I've got these these stories I can tell about my previous experience in terms of doing it. And ple- feel free to go and speak to those other clients that I've worked with. Um, but then also in any first business meeting, I always give my clients something for free. Be that an immediate quick win that they can go and do on their website right now that's going to immediately give them uh, an advantage in terms of what they're doing. So I'll give them something for free, okay, straight away. Even if, you know, they come in and say, "Which one to meet you, I'll give them something for free. At the end of the meeting, I'll send them an email saying, you need to do these 10 things to your current version of your website. And again, often what that means is because I'm giving them something without me even charging, and I could hold that advice back until they agree to pay for me but I don't. I give that advice to them for free to show them the value of what I'm worth to do this stuff. And that's the approach that I take is I always give away stuff for free. So again, you'll see it. I publish loads of free templates. So I give away all of my IA templates or my page templates. I give it all away. So again, you could go to my website and download extremely good product, e-commerce product template that I would charge a client to use to improve their product design. I'm giving that away for free. And that's the that's what I try to do to add to show the value that i'm worth is look here take this thing for free this will give you immediate benefit if you use this thing right now and if you want to work for me and get more benefit come back let's discuss terms and we'll get there
2: there's also psychology
0: involved in that i, I never do i never negotiate on price for that same reason i never negotiate on
1: price okay so a couple of things before we let Espen get a word in edgeways because i've just got to finish this Sorry. Yes. <laughs> i will negotiate on price but i won't negotiate until we've got the job and what I will often yeah. say to people is, I don't negotiate on price. I don't want you to make a decision based on price. Now, obviously, this yeah. is not you know this is outside of the whole kind of stupid public sector tendering process. But you know, if regular people talking face to face, I'm going to say to somebody, look, tell me that you want me to work with you. You know, you've made that decision. You know, you think I can do the best job, and you mm-hmm. like me better than the the guy down the road. As soon as you tell me that, look, we've got the job. The only objection is going to be the price. We can work on that. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to try to convince you based on, you know, being cheap as chips. You tell me that I'm the right person to work with and and we'll commit to that. And then we'll find a way of making it work. That's what I tend to like to do.
0: But then also, as soon as you negotiate on price, Andy, here's the thing. As soon as you say, yeah, we can do something on price, then the client immediately thinks, well... Why were you charging me a lot more in the first place? What was the,
1: ah, were you
0: trying to get one no, over on me? No, no, and this no, is no, always because, what I said. And this is the danger. This is why I Hello? don't do it. It's
1: like, this is my price. And this is how, this is the, this is I the I have written about this on 24 ways. Mm-hmm. Negotiation goes two ways and compromise the same. So if a client wants to reduce the overall price of a job, they're not, they're not looking to change my day rate. I'm never going to change my day rate. My day rate or my week rate is my weekly rate. But if Mm -hmm. they want to actually, um, you know, reduce the overall thing, then it'll be a little bit of a give and take. So I might work a couple of extra days for free. Of course, which is exactly the same as reducing your day rate. But I might do a couple of extra days or produce a few extra things for free, but they're going to give something at their end too. So we're not going to be doing, you know, all five phases in one go. We're going to be doing a little bit less. And that's negotiation. I mean, that happens, or should happen, everywhere. And that's quite healthy. You know, not in a kind of Moroccan, Mm -hmm. bizarre kind of way, because that wouldn't be right. But I think that negotiation is really quite healthy
2: hmm I, I agree with you andy but i think for us we negotiate more on scope than on
0: price yeah i agree so that's that's you know, the word i'd be in yeah that's the, the majority what I, of projects project that we go for
2: we always come in over because everybody wants everything and they haven't got the budget for it so we'll we'll come come in slightly over what they think they can afford and we'll try and convince them to go for that and if they can't we just say well maybe this particular piece of functionality isn't that important to you
0: I, and I agree because I think any time you're negotiating anything else, it's you're in a you're in a difficult position. So I'm agree. Cut scope, cut the amount of work you're going to do, but yeah, to meet budget. But don't you know? Don't cut rates. No, completely agree.
2: What we do do though is we do we do have a lower rate for charities, but that's not really a negotiation. It's just our, our stance. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, same, I do the same thing as well. Yeah, I I, I have a certain rate for
1: different organisations, like charities is a good example. Same thing as well. Yeah, we have a charity mm-hmm. rate, and we have a slightly different rate for agencies too. When we have, when they have to add a margin to what we do, mm-hmm. which is you know not mm-hmm. as often as it used to be, but you know happens now and again. We we,
2: we really try and avoid that. We, we just had a discussion the other day with a, with a client. Uh, they were working with a branding agency to do the brand, and there was a discussion about whether that agency would design the website as well and we would just build it and that was a sticking point for us where we just couldn't negotiate we either design and build it or we don't do anything at all yeah,
1: i won't work on something that somebody else has designed and i won't i won't build something that somebody else has designed and i won't generally let somebody else just build my templates i'm going to want to deliver the finished product
2: yeah now same with us we don't mind other people doing the back end for us but the, the, the marrying up of CSS and design thinking is just super, super important. So we can't really lose control of that.
1: Which is, again, going back to this whole kind of pitching, public sector tendering process that we've all said that we really hate. And I'm sure that there are other people just sitting there with their head <laughs> in their hands at the moment going, oh, my God, <laughs> if I never see that. Sell to Wales or whatever the uh, digital framework for the government thing is. You know, I'll be happy.
0: I mean, the thing—the thing I find with all—all all of those tendering processes as well is they—they they profess to be independent, but again, you—you you know, my experience is that they always know who they want to go with, and it's like they're probably going with their incumbent at the moment, but they're forced because of the procurement process to go out and get five other quotes. And the problem with that process is you don't know as a as an agency where you stand they may yeah. have been working for somebody for two years they're really happy with but because the way procurement works because it's they over three thousand pounds they have to do it so you just go into that blind and it could you just it could already be a done deal but you just don't know that until you know you've spent a day or two days putting a proposals together and you, hear, you suddenly you said get oh i'm sorry at the end of it
2: sometimes even more i mean we, we've spent We spent two weeks on a pitch once, like visuals, the full thing, really going in with everything we had. We flew to Brussels and we lost it to the incumbents.
0: Yeah. And, and it always as the new guy, you're always going to lose to the incumbent. The incumbent knows the business better than you do, knows the client better than you do, knows the challenges always better than you do. Unless you've got something special, like a different process in terms of like maybe using user research over something where the incumbent is just an agency that just does stuff based on gut instinct, you've got a reason to beat them. And that's the challenge you've got with any any blind you've got to find what your differentiator is and that's got to be something that is probably not written in the tender process you've got to find a differentiator that's going to make you look different from everybody else that the at least consider you and don't just go well these guys are really expensive and look they're doing less you know you've got to have something that's going to differentiate you
2: yeah i wonder if it's worse for the industry as a whole to waste you know five agencies time uh, pitching against something they can't win or if you know maybe nepotism is is a better option you know you go with the incumbent if you want to stick to the incumbent, and then you don't waste everybody's
0: time but i think it's probably you know if we look at pitching and the process it's something you know it was was an approach that was probably like 60 years old and it was designed for the advertising industry which you know again we're not none of us we don't work in the advertising industry anymore we don't do that stuff anymore we work in a very different world but because you know Designers effectively or designers professions come almost pretty much from advertising. We sort of have inherited this weird idea of pitching being the right way to do it and it isn't. And so again, I work with clients that and I advise them and I help them choose agency. So I do this, you know, I don't know, three or four times in the last year is I have helped companies choose an agency and I advise them not to go through pitching. We don't go through a, you know, we do go through a, a you know, a certain amount of paperwork stuff, but it's more about, you know, coming in. And the chemistry meetings with the agency and asking them certain questions about how they'd approach stuff you know and when i do that i also advise the client i'm working with to make sure that there are no account management people in that meeting as well so again anybody who comes along to that to that meeting with the client is people who are going to be doing the work not client services managers because you know anytime somebody says they're a client service manager they're basically a full-time pitcher yeah is you get people who are going to be doing the work, the designer that's going to be doing the work, the developer that's going to be doing the work, the UX or whatever. You get the people who are representative of people you're going to be actually working with and you see the whites of their eyes and you ask them the questions about how how they're going to do this, what ideas they've got, what challenges the business faces because they're at the end of the day they're the people that are going to be delivering the work and then you know, you get rid of this layer of, of account management and all account management is good for is, is basically pitching and keeping and retaining clients. They don't help in terms of delivering good quality work. And I'm probably annoying quite a lot of account managers no, by saying that. but it's interesting because you, you bring
1: up advertising and we can think about mad men again for a minute. Yeah. And that's what we expect in terms of like a large pitch. Now, what we've got to remember is that, you know, when an agency, and I don't work in advertising either, but you know, when, a, when an agency decides that they're going to spend a week or whatever putting their creative team on a pitch for a big, I don't know, in the 1960s, it'd be a cigarette company. Now it might be a washing machine company or something like that. Then Mm -hmm. they're talking about potentially winning multi-million pound accounts. They're not talking about putting all of that effort and that resource into winning a 25,000 pound web project. And yet somehow that's what we do. Somehow with a lot of people exactly. do that kind of pitching. Yeah. The other thing that yeah. springs to mind, you talking about actually helping uh, companies find the right agency and the best ways of doing it. David Ogilvy, advertising legend, wrote mm-hmm. a really brilliant book. It's, it's a little bit shaky in terms of its date now, but it's a really good book, Ogilvy on Advertising. And he talks in that book about how to find a great advertising agency. And he says, look Mm -hmm. around and find the three ads that you like the best. doesn't matter what they are. Mm -hmm. You know, the three TV ads or magazine ads or whatever it happens to be. Find the three ads that you really, really, really like. So, you know, mine's going to be PG Tips, obviously. Um, Find out who did the work and go and talk to them, you know. But take them for lunch. Don't expect them to pick up the tab, Mm -hmm. take them for lunch and find out who you have the best chemistry with. Because when Mm -hmm. you decide on, I really like working with Joe because, you know, he's just a really, really, you know, he sounds like a really great guy that knows what he's talking about. And we really seem to hit it off and we both support Bristol City. You've got something there. Um, The business negotiations can be much, much easier at that point. And I think that's still a great piece of advice. The best pitches that we have,
2: we respond with a proposal, a few pages, and then we just meet them. There's no big presentation. Mm -hmm. There's no visuals. There's no like, look, this is how we'll transform your website. It's just chemistry. We sit around a table and we just chat for an hour or two.
0: Yeah, I agree. Those are the ones we win. Those are the ones you win. And I think what's interesting, the agency I used to work for is I would um i you know and again because i just I, you know we used to, I used to do a lot of new business stuff and again i would always say well you've invited us for tender before i even fill out any documents i want to have a chat with you even on the phone or face to face about the project so i won't respond to any pay we won't respond to any paper-based stuff until we've had that initial conversation with you because again that's at the point when you realize like you say Espen, if the chemistry is right and if you win with a fighting chance or not and that's the very least you can spot then you know the probably six or seven or you know 60 to 70 percent of 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 approaches which are just them wanting to get a price to beat their incumbent agency down with so yeah i'm with you i always go for a telephone call before i fill out any paperwork um, just so i can get an idea about what the the state of play is
2: yeah which works for most pitches but not the government pqq ones
0: which is again but again it doesn't believe it or not i've tried it you can phone them up because i'll do that is it because i did one recently for a for a government agency i was like well i'm going to phone up because the person's name was on it it's like if you've got any questions give us a call so i did i phoned her up and sort of we had a good chat about it and i realized pretty much straight away that it was a they'd asked me because they'd found they googled ux and found me and they wanted me as part of the um the pitch team but again i realized i found that is when i phoned up and asked her what was going on and you know if i'd not done that telephone call i'd have been oh they they really want to work with me great let's go and i'll just spend all this time and effort putting this proposal together and i wouldn't have got the work but a quick Mm -hmm. phone call to the person who's named on the the tender document is is worth a try
1: do you know what before we started this podcast Mm -hmm. we had a whole list of things that we were going to talk about and we haven't talked about any of them (laughs) Ha. We did talk about business. Well, we did talk about business, but business was was not on the original list because we were going to talk about is the internet killing creativity and why does everybody fall over themselves to make a style guide these days and all this kind of stuff. And we haven't done any of it. So what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to do another podcast. Uh, Unfinished, unfinished business, Andy. Is it it getting getting meta now? (laughs) Uh, The meta is in title case, obviously. (laughs) Obviously. Do you know what? Before we go... I just have to talk about something that I like, apart from you two. Because what okay. I decided to do well, last year was that I decided that I wasn't doing this podcast for the money. And I didn't really want to have sponsors. So instead, I wanted to talk about a product or a service that I really like. So mm-hmm. I talked about my Bowden travel mug with Brad Frost and Stephen mm-hmm. Hay for about half an hour because I really like that. And I talked about my Jolie Originals laptop sleeve that I really, really love, that I got given by Mark Teeler at Beyond Telerand. And I've talked about my Rotaring 800 Mechanical Pencil, because, you know, who talks about mechanical pencils? Except (laughs) Brendan Dawes. So this week, I want to talk about something else that I love, I absolutely love. I want to talk about concrete. Concrete. This will be interesting. Oh, not the building go. material, but the comic book character, Concrete, by Paul Chadwick. Heard of Concrete? Ah, no. now you might like this. because no. You know, you look at films now, and Hollywood, they just seem absolutely incapable of making a film that's not based on a superhero. There is so much, much more interesting material in comics that isn't coming from DC or Marvel. And I'm just amazed that there aren't films that are based on dark horse characters, Because Dark Horse comics have been putting Mm -hmm. out some fabulous stuff for, you know, 30-odd years.
0: Yeah, I agree. Image comics as well. I really
1: like image stuff as well. There's some really good stuff on the side there. Well, I used to have, oh, quite long, many years ago, every comic that Dark Horse had ever done. Because he used to collect a lot. And I've still got, somewhere, I've still got the first printing of Boris the Bear, number one. Which is a really strange little comic. But there were some really, really incredible characters and stories from Dark Horse in the early days. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think that Boyce the Bear and Wacky Squirrel they'd make good films. Um, there was a comic called The American, which was great. And I saw a film with George Clooney, I think it was, called The American. And I got really excited thinking it was the same thing. And it wasn't. It was really dull. But in the comic book, you had this all-American, Captain America-style superhero that died at the end of every book. And what mm-hmm. happened was, was that he was just a clone. So he wasn't didn't have any superpowers at all. He was like a big front a CIA kind of made-up superhero. And every time he got shot, they just replaced him with another one. And it was a big Nothing. conspiracy, which I thought was really good. And then there was this brilliantly subversive kind of anti-superhero story, which was my favourite. It's called Concrete by Paul Chadwick. Mm-hmm. And it's brilliant because you've got the, – the premise of the story is that you've got two guys. One's called Ron. He's a speech writer for a senator in America. And him and his friend, they go hiking in the mountains. And they go into this mm-hmm. great long cave and they find themselves in the belly of this alien spaceship being captured by aliens who take out their brains and put them into these great big bodies made of concrete. And obviously the aliens are doing experiments on people. And Ron manages to escape just before the spaceship takes off. And he's left on Earth in this massive concrete body. And he has to come to terms with being concrete. And constructing this kind of backstory a you know he's supposed to be the government say that he's a cyborg and to a big cover-up and stuff like that but in amongst all of that concrete has to learn to live you know he has to you know get work and um do charity things and he has these great big adventures where he swims the atlantic and stuff like that and it's just It's just this beautiful, really quiet little human story. And it's so beautifully written and so subtle. I mean, he, for example, he's got no willy. He hasn't got a concrete (laughs) willy. And he quite misses having a willy. So he develops this, um, this sort of obsession with erotic paintings. So on the walls of his home, he has all of these erotic paintings which happen to look like the doctor that's been assigned to him. Um, and it's never spoken about. It's just this beautiful kind of little subtle thing that goes in the background. And it's fabulous. It's absolutely gorgeous and I love it. It's my favourite comic book and my favourite character and stories and I think that you should you should get it. You'll love it. It Sounds great. I never so looked. I'm going to yeah, put definitely. an affiliate link to one of the concrete graphic novel reprints in uh, in the show notes to amazon with a little affiliate code mm-hmm. and if you were uh, if you feel inspired to go and read some of my favorite comic books um then i'd appreciate you clicking through from that link and that's something that i like i'm gonna go and check it out definitely
2: that was my very first podcast ever andy
1: oh wow well you sounded great i'm glad that you came on and we must do it again and talk <laughs> about the 16 yeah, that things that we didn't actually get around to talk about you should have talked about i know Let's do that. Let me do the formal outro. People should follow Espen on Twitter. He's at E Brunborg. That's E-B-R-U-N-B-O-R-G. And you should follow Joe too. He's Mr. Joe. Or me, at Malarkey. To ask questions and suggest topics, you can message this show on Twitter at unfinishedbz or BZ, for all of those Donald Trump voters out there. And you can email me at at unfinished.bz.